Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio, asking whether you trust the science. Maybe the better question is, which science do you trust? Here at Truth Jihad Radio, we listen to scientific voices of people without the kinds of institutional affiliations that lead to pressures to conform to dubious orthodoxies enforced by money and power. One of those independent scientists who I respect enormously is today's guest, Josh Middeldorf. If you like this kind of radio, please do subscribe by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the radio show that goes into all sorts of forbidden places looking for truth about the most important issues that you're being lied to about by the corporate mainstream. I'm Kevin Barrett, and now going to the topic of, well, a number of topics, including spirituality, uh, public health, hidden history, and so on, uh, bringing on Josh Middeldorf, who is one of the most influential, let's call them health advisors that I've run into over the years. And he's well known for his work on aging, or rather on countering aging. His website is the Aging Advice website. And I guess uh, we're going to start out, Josh, by by talking about how your worldview uh, changed radically uh, recently um, after a terrible bicycle accident. So tell, tell us about that. I don't think we've really talked about that on the radio yet. Oh, Kevin, uh, it's great to be back with you. I, I think we were talking about uh, me being on this show back in July before this happened to me. Um, I guess a little background is that I've read enough about experiments with parapsychology, with the paranormal, that I'm a believer. And I kept saying... I have no personal experience with this. I want something to show me that this is real and help me to believe it in my gut rather than just have it as part of my scientific view that uh, parapsychology, that knowledge of the future, even moving events by our thoughts are real phenomena. Um, so, uh, dreams come true sometimes in ways that uh, aren't exactly what we had hoped for. It was July 21st, my daughter's birthday. I'm bicycling on a very familiar route, but I, I knew it was a route where people drive too fast. And I'm very aware of what's going on behind me as I'm bicycling, but this road is completely clear in front of me, so I'm looking down. And someone, I think it was an SUV or a truck, pulls into the passing lane, which is my lane. It's only a two-lane uh, road and barrels toward me at passing speed, maybe 40 or 50 miles an hour. And I just look up and I think, oh, there's no avoiding this. I, on my bicycle, rammed into a speeding truck. Uh, that, that sounds and, uh, completely hideous. Well, there was no fear involved. I woke up seconds later on the side of the road, um, fairly lucid, calm, despite the fact that I've had fear of death in the abstract my whole life, there was no fear in that moment. 
And of course, it was the time that I was closest to death. Uh, I wasn't aware until later how close to death I was. Right. Um, as it turned out, not only did I survive this accident, but there was no injury to my brain, my spine, my um, ribs were all intact. My vital organs were all untouched. So all the damage was in my legs, which were mangled completely. I had seven operations to try to piece together my leg out of spare parts with bone grafts, muscle grafts, skin grafts. Um, I'm just now uh, slowly getting up in a wheelchair and starting to walk again. Um, but this turned into a spiritual event for me in that as a statistician, I look at, well, you know, what are the odds of this? It's got to be much less than one in a million. I, I've never, I've looked around on the web. I haven't heard of anybody who has survived a head-on collision with a truck with uh, with all his vital organs intact and when the odds are that low as a statistician for many studies I, I say well this didn't occur by chance yes. is this the message I'm looking for that um, somebody wants me alive somebody thinks that I'm able to absorb a lot of tough love lessons from being disabled from being at the mercy of my caregivers from trusting actually the only part of the medical establishment that I ever would trust, which is their trauma care. I had excellent trauma care and doctors who not only saved my life at a time when I was within minutes of bleeding to death, but saved my leg. Um, so this has led to a deep feeling that one, I'm being taken care of and two, that this is a crucial time ahead of us that needs me in some way, not that I have to be overtly a leader or famous or uh, have a large following, but that in some way my presence in this coming transformation is important. And uh, that, that's the message I've pulled out of this. Um, I, I don't call it an accident. Wow, that, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. And it, it kind of reminds me of when I uh, nearly died in a body surfing accident in Morocco a few years back and wow. uh, kind of had the same sense that it was a message. In your case, I, I can see how uh, it could, I could also sense a kind of, well, a message that you, you know, you shouldn't identify entirely with your body because as you said you have a lifelong fear of death i guess we all do but uh you're smart enough to be aware of that and uh so you have gone into anti-aging work which holds out the prospect of possibly uh dramatically increasing human lifespan although so far all we were absolutely sure is that we can extend healthy lifespan maybe 10 years or so you know, at least if you don't starve yourself, in which case maybe you could go a little past that. But anyway, you're you're very much uh, tied into uh, trying to extend the physical lifespan of the physical body, which implies a really strong identification with life in the body and being attached. You know, consciousness being totally attached to the body, uh, and that of course may not be the deeper reality. And, and in fact, I you know I as 
my my Islamic teachings of it and and spiritual teachings in general I've encountered suggest that we're here as a test that God is testing us, and part of the test is uh, recognizing that the physical body with all of the selfish desires that are implied in it um, is something that has to be tamed and ultimately overcome. Ooh. Well, two comments on that. Uh, one is that, yes, uh, I was motivated for a long time. I, you know, I've been in this business for 16 years. I've been motivated by fear of death to do all this life extension work. And that fear of death has really subsided, eased and with my meditation practice and also with things that I've read. If anybody's not familiar with Leslie Kane's book, Surviving Death, it's just a, an extraordinary uh, compendium of all the evidence there is for um, communications with the dead, for reincarnation, for many, uh, many indications that the mind is larger than the brain, that there's something of us that's eternal that doesn't uh, die when the body dies. Uh, and the the other comment I wanted to make is that uh, maybe this is a topic for another whole discussion. There is recently, just this year, uh, evidence for real life extension, real rejuvenation from a colleague of mine, Harold Catcher, who has turned two-year-old rats into one-year-old rats in his laboratory using a proprietary formula. Um, the, the short story is that he looked at circulating factors in the blood with a theory that I share that uh, aging is not something at the cellular levels. Aging is programmed by signal molecules in the blood. And if you can restore the signaling environment to a young environment, then the body will turn into a younger body. There's nothing irreparable, at least in the, until the last stages of aging. There's nothing irreparable, and the body can be, uh, body's clock can be set back, and when the clock is set back, the body will become younger. He is very secretive about what that process is, but he's hoping to test it in humans in the next few months and has big marketing plans for a program to affordably uh, extend real rejuvenation technology to the masses. You know, unlike the COVID vaccine experiment, this might be an experiment I would consider volunteering for <laughs> uh, and not just in the control group. Uh, yeah. You know, turning a 62-year-old, which is what I am now, into a 31-year-old uh, would be kind of interesting. <laughs> so I've told him from the start, I want to be volunteer number 10 when this thing reaches the... Uh, Why number 10? Uh, I want to see nine people rejuvenated before. Oh, I don't want to be number the, one. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be 11 then. <laughs> if it works on you. <laughs> you I'll can sign do you up, Kevin. Oh, man. Wow. So so that's interesting. So, okay, so you you just had this life-changing experience that uh, accentuated you know, this your spiritual dimension at the same moment that your lifelong quest for anti-aging looks like it might actually be going somewhere. Um, that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of a, a, an interesting couple of synchronistic factors. Uh, um, 
with any any more thoughts on that before we move on to RFK well, Jr.'s I mean, book? There's so much happening. Uh, I mean, a topic that we'll get to it at the end. Everybody knows but puts out of his mind the fact that the world's ecosystems are collapsing and it's all our fault. And uh, human human life has always been the top of the food chain. There's no there's no possibility we can live on some farm earth that uh, kills all the species off, but keeps the few that we need for food. Uh, biology doesn't work like that. We need an ecosystem under us and we're killing that ecosystem. So um, you know, everybody knows that that's happening over the next coming decades. Uh, I see what's happening this year as part of that, perhaps it's motivated as a response to that. There are all kinds of theories about depopulation and uh, all-powerful people who know that they need to avoid these uh, this ecological disaster and are willing to kill huge numbers of people to do it. I don't know whether to put credence in that, but it's something I take seriously. Uh, meanwhile, there's this huge economic crisis, the, the end of a death spi debt spiral that uh, we have to find some graceful way out of the fact that the dollar is leveraged way, way beyond anything that could ever be paid by future uh, future generations. Um, what are we going to do about that? So there are these overlapping crises in the world. Um, I guess the other crisis is the collapse of democracy and um, the takeover of our own government by the CIA, something you, you and you've talked about many times and you and I have talked about. So all these things happening at the same time is why I believe that COVID is the beginning of uh, a crisis that will reshape the world. Uh, in ways that uh, we're going to have to take control of. I mean, you and I are going to have to take control of it and all of our listeners um, because we don't want Bill Gates to be the one who's taking control of it. And, and that's actually a good segue into RFK Jr.'s book because it it seems like uh, there is a pretty energetic grassroots movement behind uh, a lot of the positions that RFK Jr. takes in this book, um, which you know really cuts across the grain of what the mainstream has told us about this pandemic. It, it turns out that if, if RFK Jr. is right, or even partly right, we've really been had. And if, you know, he, he has that Kennedy name that has made the book a bestseller, it seems like this uh, forbidden knowledge that has been censored away you know, out of the internet, the mainstream media has has lied about it, censored it, and ignored it. But the the, uh, the knowledge that the story we're getting about this pandemic is just a lie upon lie upon lie is kind of right out there now for everybody to see. Thanks in in large part to this new number one bestseller, uh, the real Dr. Fauci by RFK Jr. So. You think that that book could play a role in the kind in, in stimulating us to take control of this uh, away from people like Gates and Fauci? Yeah, that, well, that was the occasion for uh, this discussion, and um, I'm happy to launch into it. There's so many things covered in this book, and 
so many ways in which Kennedy has been really a hero. He's the best we've got in getting the truth out to the public. He's absolutely fearless, despite the fact that the CIA murdered his his father and his brother and and his uncle and probably his cousin, uh, John Kennedy Jr. Um, He's... (laughs) What can I say? He's completely audacious and yet very aware of how easy it is to discredit him. And he documents meticulously everything that he says. So even I, who had uh, thought that I had no faith in Fauci, uh, yeah, my mouth dropped open when I realized that the AIDS crisis in the 1990s was a rehearsal in which Fauci used all of the techniques that he's now using to uh, enslave the world or to um, push the vaccine agenda above all other agendas, modify all of our lifestyles, become a celebrity, become more powerful in the process. Uh, the story that Kennedy tells is that when Fauci inherited NIAID in 1984. Infectious disease was a yawn. Um, Infectious disease had largely subsided since the beginning of the 20th century with antibiotics and with vaccines, with sanitation. And this Bureau of Infectious Diseases really was a small part of health, which was the NIH was devoted almost entirely to heart attacks and cancer, which were the big killers at the time. Um, And Fauci, being an ambitious person, realized he needed something to uh, bring attention, bring funding to his agency. And when AIDS came along, he ruthlessly used it to bring, uh, bring funding to his organization. And the extent to which he was used, willing to murder people and willing to uh, to perpetrate fraud on the public just to bring funding to his organization just is, uh, as I say, jaw-dropping. Uh, it started with the time when AIDS was not known to be a virally transmitted disease. And uh, there's actually a credible theory that which I had no aware of awareness of until I read uh, this new book that AIDS, in fact, is caused by um, drug use, um, particularly amyl nitrate, which was a favorite drug in uh, gay bars. And that it that's what's destroying the immune system and that HIV is just an opportunistic infection. The person to come up with that uh, hypothesis was a very credible person named Dr. Peter Duisberg, a professor at Berkeley in molecular biology and virology, who had a great deal of credibility, 15,000 citations to his name. And if he was right, all of this funding for the new pandemic would not go to Fauci's agency. 
and Fauci set about to destroy Peter Duisburg. First, he had at that point a lot of control over funding, not nearly as much as he has now, but he used what he had to first deny Duisburg any funding, um, then to deny funding to anybody who would work with Duisburg or co-author a paper with him, and then to deny funding to anybody who attended a conference where Duisburg was a speaker. Uh, no, that's pretty so, extreme. Uh, really? Uh, I mean, Duisburg, despite the fact that he had this long distinguished career, just went into eclipse. He couldn't get funding for anything that he was doing. Um, so Fauci's motto is if you can't win the debate, you can smear the guy and you know, the usual ad hominem techniques that we see. Ad hominem attacks, exactly. I mean, does that sound like anything that we see today? <laughs> oh, so uh, he destroyed Duisburg and then uh, he he went on to propagate this the theory that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS as a dogma and to destroy anybody who says anything otherwise, uh, just to squelch any voice in the media or in the academic press, in the medical literature that would look for other causes of AIDS. Um, he belatedly but cleverly allied himself with the gay community pretended to be their uh, their ally and yet squelched all of the drugs that these rump groups and uh, local doctors who were experimenting with anti-inflammatories and with uh, anti, um, antibacterial drugs that help with the infections that were really the, the downfall of AIDS patients. Um, he absolutely refused to do clinical trials with any of those things. And he says the only remedy for, um, for AIDS is AZT. Well, AZT had been a chemotherapy agent for leukemia, but had been rejected early in the trials. It was too toxic, even for short-term use. It was killing everybody. And yet, Fauci took this drug and promoted it as this is going to be what cures AIDS. And uh, he had it approved as the only treatment for AIDS and convinced enough people that, um, especially through such groups as ACT UP, they believed the hype and they were lining up to get AZT. And of course, AZT was killing them. Uh, after reading this book, I am convinced that many of the people who were said to die of AIDS actually died of poisoning from AZT. It's such a toxic drug and its symptoms really mimic the, um, the symptoms of AIDS, including collapse of the immune system. Maybe the collapse of the immune system was actually caused by AZT. It's interesting how that kind of mimics what we're seeing today with the vaccine all-cause mortality looking higher than the non-vaccinated all-cause mortality that the uh, the cure looks like it could be worse than the disease. Yeah. Um, not only is, um, is the vaccine uh, a toxic product, uh, which, um, for which 
Fauci has excluded all of the credible alternatives, but he has promoted remdesivir, an antiviral drug in which he has a financial interest and which is really an exact analogy to AZT. Remdesivir is very toxic. Yeah, the, the and, nurses are calling it run, death is near. Yeah. <laughs> Cost $3,000 yeah. per treatment. <laughs> and, the, and the lethal side effects include multiple organ failure, acute kidney failure, septic shock, and hypotension. So no wonder a lot of people don't want to go to the hospital if they get COVID. Yeah. Including me. Wait, wait till people are near death's door. Don't treat them in the early stages with ivermectin and with hydroxychloroquine, which are known safe drugs, which have been for decades used by third world peoples to uh, as a preventive taken daily. And somehow he's convinced us that these drugs are unsafe in the case of um, chloroquine and a horse drug in the case of ivermectin. Uh, just these uh, wall-to-wall -wall propaganda campaigns to convince us that these drugs are worthless when in fact it's the best thing we have. And together, the, the symptom, the figure is something like 80% of all hospitalizations and deaths could be avoided if people are treated early with ivermectin and with chloroquine. And yet these have been suppressed directly by Fauci with the cooperation of the media and with the medical establishment. This is mass murder, murder of uh, millions of people on the on the global stage by denying them a very safe and effective treatment. And the way the media has mischaracterized this is one of the most stunning aspects of the situation. Well, maybe more stunning for people who haven't looked at some of the issues I've looked at on this radio show. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, everything that you're saying and everything that is so well documented in RFK Jr.'s book, it cuts across the grain of the media portrayal of these things. And it turns out that Fauci's empire uh, extends into media. Uh, and for example, you know, it's in his ally, uh, Bill Gates, who's invested in all the same farm, big pharma companies that stand to profit if they can force you to use toxic, uh, remdesivir, you know, 3000 per treatment instead of uh, ivermectin or whatever for a few dollars. These, they, they, you know, just handed last year $3 million to NPR from Bill and Melinda Gates. Uh, and these kinds of financial uh, interrelations between big pharma and media go a long way to explaining why the portrayal that we've seen of these events in the media is so ridiculously dishonest. Yeah, I agree completely. And um, so a story that goes along with that is um, the 2009 swine flu epidemic that didn't happen. Uh, was actually rescued. I mean, the world was rescued from having a 2020 experience in 2009 by the press that said, this is a complete fraud. It's a phony. At that time, there was not the control over the press that there was now. So there was an article that um, Simone Gold dug up and exposed uh, two summers ago at a uh, uh, press conference in Washington where Forbes wrote why the who faked a pandemic. This was an article on the Forbes website still there from 2009 that she publicized. 
so Forbes was willing to, I mean, Forbes is no radical uh, organ, and yet they were willing to challenge Fauci and challenge the dogma from the World Health Organization, which even at that time was heavily influenced by Gates, and declare that the uh, swine flu epidemic was a deliberate fraud on the public. Um, so 11 years later, not only is the press not challenging the, um, the the narrative that comes out of the corporate the corporations and the government, but they're um, they're actually actively promoting it. And Forbes, which had been a hero eleven years earlier, took down the only copy that it had on its web page of that article, "Why the Hoop Faked the Pandemic." Which I mean, it's worth reading. It's, it's very worth reading. You can find it in archive.org, the Internet Archive, um, where it's it's still available, but no longer on the Forbes website. Um, I think what's happened that's made possible this pandemic, whereas many tries at pandemics failed in the past, uh, maybe starting with 2003 and the SARS, the first SARS epidemic. Uh, the thing that's really made this possible is that there's more control, tighter control over the media from the Gates Foundation and from um, th this handful of corporations and from Big Pharma that advertises so heavily in the media that they're dependent on those advertisements and they don't dare say anything against the pharma industry. So this takeover of the media has advanced far enough that they could get away in 2020 with what they couldn't get away with in 2009 or 2003. And they're censoring the internet too, in an unprecedented way. Uh, five years ago, essentially everyone agreed that uh, all internet platforms, as opposed to publishers, had to follow First Amendment guidelines. All protected speech had to be treated exactly equally. And if not, uh, that outfit would be uh, deemed a publisher rather than a platform, and it would be fully responsible for uh, any kind of libelous or otherwise illegal content that anyone posted, and it would quickly go out of business. So that's how the internet worked up until about 2016. Wow. And I didn't know that. Yeah, How did it, that change? It changed as uh, think tanks and uh, mainstream newspapers around 2016, right during the period of the rise of Trump, and then especially thereafter, started putting out these, uh, first they were trial balloons, and then they became uh, stronger sort of, you know, op-ed pieces and, and, and policy statements and such, all saying essentially that, oh, no, uh, actually the Communications Decency Act doesn't say what we always thought it said. And in fact, it could be okay for platforms to uh, censor <laughs> and treat content differently, even if it's protected, because there's so much stuff that we really don't like uh, that nobody should want to be uh, treated equally, like these conspiracy theories and such. Uh, and then after Trump was elected, then they started panicking and saying, look what happened. We allowed free speech on the Internet. And these devious uh, cretins used it to elect this, this psychopath president Etc. 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 And so then they started really uh, you know, openly um, censoring internet content, and 
when the pandemic came along, they had a new excuse, which is that free speech on the Internet can be a threat to public health. And so suddenly (laughs) these rules sprang up at all of the major Internet platforms uh, saying that you can't contradict anything that the uh, WHO or the uh, CDC says uh, about uh, the COVID pandemic. And if you do, we'll take you down, uh, you'll, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that, that then, once it became acceptable to have these kinds of widespread censorship policies, the policies have been growing and creeping and getting bigger and more and more topics are becoming uh, verboten at YouTube. And my channel just got its second strike due to some supposedly violating, a, I guess, a new rule uh, against uh, questioning election results. Anybody who undermines the public's wow. faith in election integrity <laughs> uh, in any American presidential election or the most recent German presidential election, and that's specific, uh, will have their uh, you know, wow. assess strikes and then have their, their YouTube channel destroyed. In my case, if they if they do give me a third strike, I will lose, uh, I don't know how many uh, thousands of hours of content that I've been putting up since 2008 or something like that. Uh, and so that's just one example of what's happened all over the Uh, not a little bit, <laughs> not as much as it should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, get, get somebody on that. Yeah. So I, I'd forgotten about that connection with Trump. In my mind, Trump is a buffoon, too incompetent to be the kind of danger to American democracy that his predecessors, Obama and uh, the shrub, were. Um, and yet, the whole Democratic establishment has said Trump is not only worse than these guys, but qualitatively different from all other presidents. And uh, as you say, uh, warrants uh, censorship of free speech because we just can't allow Trump to have a voice. Um, I've been a, a participant a contributor to the election integrity movement since 2005. And there's a split among my colleagues. Some of them see exactly what's going on. And uh, Mark Crispin Miller is a both a, a big spokesperson for truth in the COVID era and wrote the first seminal book exposing the theft of the 2004 election. Uh, but there are other people who really have lagged behind. They don't see COVID as the same kind of fraud. Uh, They were powerful election integrity activists in the past, but now they say, I'm not going to let Trump have a recount. He's too dangerous a person. And it's a a charade to uh, allow this kind of recount. They're just trying to undermine the process. So, They've abandoned their commitment to election integrity when Trump wants a recount, uh, while they've been calling for recounts and more transparency in the system uh, for the many years that Republicans were stealing elections from Democrats. And now they can't talk about any of that on YouTube anymore. In fact, if you try to talk about Gore Vidal's book, 1876, which documents the chicanery in the 1876 election, uh, or Gore Vidal's book, The Golden Age, which uh, documents the amazing chicanery in the 1940 election, 
you'll be deplatformed from YouTube. And, and if you go and talk about uh, Nixon versus Kennedy in 1960, I guess if you talk about uh, Nixon cutting a deal with the Vietnamese in 1968 to torpedo any Democratic attempts to get some kind of a peace uh, October surprise, if, if you talk about the October surprise of uh, Reagan and Bush versus Jimmy Carter overthrowing Jimmy Carter by negotiating with the Iranians to have them hang on to the hostages until Reagan was inaugurated. And then, of course, the Iranians are you know, signaling the truth of this. It released the hostages just minutes after Reagan was sworn in. And he talked about, you know, 2000 with a hanging Chad gate, the Republicans are stealing the election for Bush-Cheney, or even more blatant 2004 uh, computer vote fraud, et cetera, et cetera. You can't talk about any of that anymore on YouTube because now they have a policy that questioning the uh, total integrity of any American presidential election in all of history is uh, enough to get you deplatformed. This you can't make this stuff up. Um, <laughs> what a broad knowledge you have of. Uh, now I'm aware of some of the sources that you cited. I'm not aware of the Gore Vidal, and I'm going to look that up. Um, yeah, these are all, all connected and signs from the past of what's really closing closing in on us this year. I think uh, Naomi Wolf told us in 2007 that when the doors to an open society close, it's very gradual at first, but then at an accelerating pace. And then when they've got their all their act together, the, the door slams shut. And this is the year the door is slamming shut. It sure looks that way. Well, maybe people will get mad enough to kick it back open. Uh, there are certainly <laughs> some, some big uh, demonstrations going on across Europe, and, and even some here, especially in New York City, where my False Flag Weekly News colleague, Kat McGuire, has been doing amazing things. Uh, and and there's so, even, even the people who are opposed to it admit that there's tremendous energy in what they dismissively call the anti-vax movement. Uh, so maybe things will start to pick up. And again, I, you know, I, I voted for RFK Jr. for president in the last presidential election. I had absolutely no use for Trump or Biden. So I thought I would cast a sort of symbolic vote for the guy who, you know, whose, whose, uh, uh, ancestors or, uh, his, his forebears were, were murdered in, in, you know, attacks on democracy. And, and he's been willing to be upfront about that and, and many other things. Uh, so again, this, this new book, which I would urge people to consider, uh, buying for your local library, uh, your friends and relatives, if they're literate and, you know, 1% open-minded, I've, I've even been sending it to my <laughs> 0.1% open-minded, uh, family members, <laughs> uh, keep it up there on that bestseller list. This could play a role in, uh, kicking open that door. Well, let's hope so. Um, I, I suggest we move on to the last part of the, Okay, right, our, our third topic, uh, and this this one is is the one that you probably know a lot more than than me about, uh, which is the the issue of of Graham Hancock's explorations of earlier uh, hidden. Uh, before so, we get to that, okay. before oh, we okay. get to that, I just want to talk about what does Kennedy have to say about this? Oh, He's okay. not silent about the larger implications. I think he takes a big step toward the larger implications of this. That it's not just about. Uh, pharmaceutical profits and it's not just about tony fauci it's much bigger than that so the last chapter which is long goes into the history of biowarfare and the time in which biowarfare was outlawed and um 
both the Defense Department and Tony Fauci saw an opportunity in this. Well, we can't continue this biowarfare research un under the Defense Department, but we can disguise it as pandemic preparedness and continue it under NIAID. So that happened around the year 2000, which is also around the time that Gates and Fauci formed their alliance. Uh, and ever since, the funding for biowarfare and for, quote, pandemic preparedness by uh, creating stockpiles of vaccines for non-existent uh, bugs, by using um, gain-of-function techniques to take harmless bacteria, harmless viruses and make them deadly to humans with laboratory interventions uh, in the name of, well, maybe nature would come up with this. And so we have to look at it and be prepared for it if it happens. So we'll create the threat in advance to see how we would counter it in the event of. Uh, he documents that whole thing. And I, I he also talks about pandemic preparedness exercises, which uh, I, I'd been aware of the one in uh, 2019, the uh, event 201. And there was another one a couple of years before that, that really were uh, eerie in how accurately they predicted what was going to happen in 2020. But he, uh, what I learned from RFK is that this is just the last two of 20 years of preparedness exercises in which the CIA and NIAID and the World Health Organization, of course, Bill Gates, all come together and um, they simulate a pandemic in the sense of what would we do if we were in charge of this pandemic? And tellingly, they have no concern at all for public health. They're not trying to network doctors so that they could learn more about what treatment work. They're not trying to isolate the most vulnerable people and make sure they're protected. They're not trying to quarantine the people who are very sick, let alone treat them and make them better. They're trying to use the pandemic uh, they assume that there will be public unrest, there will be riots in the streets, there will be civil disobedience, and the entire exercise is devoted to how do we stop the public from uh, from protesting the coercive measures that we need to do to control this uh, this pandemic. And of course, uh, the way to control a pandemic is with healing measures and you don't need any coercion to get somebody to take a, a medical product if it's actually good for him you need coercion when the product does more harm than good and people figure that out uh, but the, these exercises really cemented in the mind of the public and the media the idea that the thing to do in a pandemic is to take authoritarian control, to suspend the Constitution, to censor free speech, and to put forward a single-minded, government-controlled response to the pandemic with no dissent allowed. Um, so that comes from 
military kind of thinking, not from public health kind of thinking. And the two worlds have been merged now, the public health world and the uh, and the military world. Uh, well, I don't think it's a merger. It's more of a hostile takeover by the military world. And if, if they think that, you know, they need all these military measures at, if there's a pandemic, that's because they know darn well that it's almost certain that the only pandemics you really need to worry about are biowar pandemics. Because <laughs> the, the people in charge of the biowar programs, people like Robert Cadlick, are extreme enthusiasts who think that biological warfare is the future of warfare. Uh, and so they know it's coming. And so that's what, you know, they're, they're just hiding from the rest of us the fact that this is obviously biological warfare. That leads me to ask you, what do you think about RFK Jr. kind of not quite going all the way in terms of, uh, you know, Ron Unz's work on the fact that COVID very likely was unleashed as part of a perhaps uh, a blowback-ridden U.S. neoconservative bioattack on China and Iran? It's so hard to know. Uh, you were the one who directed me to Ernst's work, and it was eye-opening to see how much um, preparation there was in advance, se seeming foreknowledge of the coming pandemic early in 2019 by the U.S. military. And that seems to be a strong indication that... Um, well, well, so I, I, I came into this already convinced from genetic evidence that the COVID pandemic came from a laboratory. Then the question is, well, was it the laboratory in Wuhan? Was it a U.S. laboratory? Was it unleashed on the world by the Chinese who seem to have suffered very little from this? Or was it unleashed um, on the world by the U.S.? Or was it unleashed uh, with a target of China? intending to harm only the Chinese, but then it just didn't turn out that way. And um, the U.S. response had to do a quick turnaround when it was discovered that this virus was actually doing a lot more harm in other parts of the world than in China. Um, maybe that's the scenario that I would lean toward, especially the fact that um, Iran was an early target of the COVID pandemic. More more people died in Iran early in the pandemic than than any other country, including a lot of the key political leaders at a time when we were uh, busy assassinating Iranian leaders. Uh, it it all seems too convenient. It, it seems. Uh, that the preponderance of the evidence anyway points out points to this being an American bioweapon, perhaps aimed at China as a shot across the bow. Don't you dare try to threaten the status of the dollar as the world's reserve currency with your new digital UN, um, let alone just overtake the U.S. economy by being the manufacturing hub of the world and the de facto leader in world economics. Um, yeah, I, I, agree yeah, with I mean, that. you can yeah. tell that I, I'm a I have a long history of association with China. I've spent a lot of time in China uh, consulting at Chinese laboratories. My daughters are Chinese. I speak Chinese. Um, so I, I recognize a bias in this area. I don't want to think that this was a 
Chinese active war against America. I'd much rather think it was an American active war against China. And I could be wrong about that. I would think that, you know, since China is the rising number two power and the U.S. is the declining number one power, it's vastly more likely that the U.S. would want to um, accelerate hostilities quickly while it still has its perceived power as opposed to waiting, whereas from the Chinese perspective, the longer you wait, the better. So I would tend to agree that any that the more offensive acceleration of hostilities is going to be coming from the American end. That's even before we get into our kind of emotional biases about countries and their behavior. Um, but And I, I do also think that the U.S., owned by a bunch of kleptocratic billionaire oligarchs uh, who are purely out for self-interest and interest of their class, uh, is is likely to behave worse than China, where you have a uh, a party that has managed to uh, make corruption uh, a really bad word uh, that has, yeah, for all of its authoritarianism and nastiness, at least has some conception of the public interest of the average Chinese person that they care about somewhat, and, and increasingly so now as they start to rein in some of the kleptocratic uh, oligarchical tendencies that are starting to grow up there. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you there. But I, I would also wonder whether it could be possible that among those who would have been responsible for this biological attack on China and Iran that launched the COVID pandemic that uh, while perhaps uh, some of them, we a very small number of people who would have been aware of this, uh, but some might have seen this as a patriotic American uh, attempt to maintain uh, our number one position in the world and assuming that it's going to be contained in China and Iran, whereas others might have known that it was going to blow back or even have planned to make sure it was going to blow back and do what it's done. It's some. Um, I've spoken uh, with Ron Unz about this. He thinks it's crazy. It sounds kind of crazy that even you know nobody could be that crazy. But I'm not so sure because this this biowar complex disguised as a civilian uh, pandemic containment has raked in the cash uh, from this, as have all sorts of other extremely powerful interests. They've consolidated their power, which they might think is a necessary step. Uh, in preliminary to going up the escalation ladder against China and, and the rest of the more independent countries. And, and there's also a sense in which this pandemic hitting the, the West, the heartland of the Anglo-Zionist empire, could be viewed as a kind of inoculation for what's to come. You know, I actually had a conversation with uh, some uh, some military character who called me up to sort of harass me and sound me out when I was uh, suddenly becoming well-known for 9-11 truth uh, activism back uh, circa sort of 2005, 2006. And uh, I think, you know, I I mentioned that 9-11 could have been viewed as a kind of inoculation. That is a a huge, you know, if you're worried that somebody might set off a nuclear bomb in an American city or otherwise, you know, employ WMD uh, to create a, a horrific terror event. One way that you could mobilize the immune defenses of the nation uh, to make sure that that would be contained if and when it happened is you could stage your own event and, you know, kill only 3,000 people, but get the emotional effect and the, and the effect on the policies that you would get from a much worse disaster. And that way you can create the immune, the immune system of the anti-terror uh, network and, and policies and money and so on and so forth that will prevent 
the, the actual uh, thing, you know, the, a really bad event like, you know, nuclear bombs simultaneously going off in a dozen or more American cities or whatever you're afraid of. So anyway, I, I, I mentioned that that could have been a motivation behind why people in the national security apparatus would go along with 9-11. And he, he loved it and totally agreed. And this, you know, and this was somebody that I had a sense was some kind of, uh, high-level insider that was trying to, you know, mess with my mind a little bit, but also, you know, figure out how I was thinking about that. So anyway, that same wow. kind of scenario, I mean, uh, that, yes. that, that scenario this... could, could be COVID, COVID too. Like if they're, if they're going to plan on being able to go up the acceleration or uh, ladder, the escalation ladder rather with biological warfare, they might want to dose the West, their own heartland, with, uh, with, uh, you know, an inoculation against it so that all of the, the social, uh, things that will be necessary, you know, to rally the public when we go into full scale or higher scale biowarfare, the, the basics will already be there, right? Just in the same way that inoculation mobilizes the immune system. So there's my, you know, one reason that we might suspect that some of the people that would have hit China and Iran with this might have actually planned or intended a blowback. Wow. Um, I always enjoyed talking to you because uh, you're always prepared to look at the the big picture, and um, as it leads us into mysteries, to, what to me is the biggest mystery is there are so many agendas that are served by the present pandemic. There's the agenda of the the pharmaceutical companies, of course, and the um, NIAID making billions of dollars. There's also the banking industry that um, this infusion of trillions of dollars into the economy uh, out of thin air has kept the banking, have, has kept the financial system alive. Uh, and COVID was the excuse for releasing trillions of dollars of created money. Um, there's the World Economic Forum people. There's the CIA people. Um, and the World Economic Forum clearly wants a complete transformation of society into a controlled uh, world government um, where freedoms are very much limited, where there's one culture throughout the whole world and where creativity is completely stifled, where there's no private ownership except by the, a handful of elite. You will own and nothing and you will be happy. There it is. Uh, and then there's the uh, agenda of the CIA, which has been destroying democracies and pushing for uh, fascist control, meaning corporate government partnership control over the world uh, ever since the end of World War II. So the hard thing for me to imagine is how do all of these constituencies come together to decide that there's going to be a pandemic, there's going to be a pandemic this year? Certainly their agendas overlap, but they're not at all identical. And I mean, Talk about honor among thieves. I, I just can't imagine people that powerful working together to create this event. It, it's hard for me to imagine how it happened. Okay, it could be a Who's small group, really a very small group or subset of them that does, they, they create the event and then the rest see some benefits so they go along with it. 
Something like that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, you know, we may have solved the, <laughs> where yeah. the pandemic came from, at least in very, very broad strokes. Uh, but we're going to have to uh, carry on the rest of the conversation, including this stuff you wanted to talk about, about Gray and Hancock and possibility of an actual Noah's flood and Atlantis and things like that. We'll have to put that off for another show. Because yeah, let's we're talk again uh, about all that stuff. But I, before we go, I just want to leave your listeners. This is a call to action for all of us. Uh, the very least we can do is to align our thoughts toward escaping from this, visualizing scenarios in which the world transforms this pretended authoritarian takeover into a way to expose the all of the wrongdoing in the world, the people behind this, and get them out of the leadership positions. To um, think about ways to create local alternatives to authoritarian centralized control of our economy and of our government, uh, we all need to be moving very quickly in the directions that will turn the situation around. Uh, and it's not something that's going to be done by a, a charismatic leader and coming forward. It's going to be done by millions of uh, small projects, local projects that create alternatives to the present system and um i just ask all of your listeners to step up and be part of that okay well i would echo those thoughts thank you so much josh middeldorf uh, i love doing inter interviews with you and um i say alhamdulillah that you got through a uh, head-on collision with a truck and you're still with us uh, helping us make sense of the craziness around us today so god bless keep up the good work and, and let's talk again Thank you. It's always uh, delightful and informative to be talking with you, Kevin. Well, thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Take care. Mm -hmm.